The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Caleb Benjamin. Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 30th, 2023. This week, House Republicans approved a measure to cut Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's salary from more than $221,000 annually to less than $1. Republican lawmakers pointed to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the military's recent recruiting shortfalls, and COVID-19 vaccine policies as reasons for their dissatisfaction with Austin's work. While the pay cut has little chance of becoming law, It reflects increasing hostility from conservatives towards military leaders. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from December 9th, 2020, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Mike O'Hanlon and Corey Shockey to discuss the nomination of General Austin in 2020, why it was controversial, Austin's background, and who might have been a better choice. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 9th, 2020. President-elect Joe Biden has selected a new Secretary of Defense, retired General Lloyd Austin, former commander of Central Command. The selection has received somewhat mixed reviews, so we thought we'd have a conversation about why Joining me in the Jungle Studio yesterday morning was my Brookings colleague, Mike O'Hanlon, defense policy analyst extraordinaire, and in the afternoon, Corey Shockey, the head of defense and foreign policy at the American Enterprise Institute. We wove these two conversations together, so it sounds like we're all in the Jungle Studio at the same time, even though we weren't. Why are people upset about General Austin's nomination? What is his background? What is the experience he doesn't have? Who would have been a better choice? And does it matter that this is the second administration in a row that begins by putting a retired general at the head of the Pentagon? It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 9th, General Austin as Secretary of Defense. I want to start with just the biography of the person involved. I think it's fair to say that the naming of General Austin was a bit of a surprise. Who is he and why is the the choice a little bit surprising today? 
Hi, Ben. Well, it's a treat to be with you all. And I think it is a big surprise, although we've been conditioned to expect the possibility in the last two weeks since his, been, his name's been in the conversation, along with uh, former Secretary Jay Johnson as the other two candidates, along with Michelle Flournoy, who was always the odds-on favorite. Really, Michelle's been the odds-on favorite for the next Democratic Secretary of Defense going back to when Hillary lost to Donald Trump in 2016. And General Austin is a retired four-star African-American general, a soldier, and uh, he was notable as being a big part of the surge in Iraq as David Petraeus's deputy after General Odierno had stepped down or been reassigned. You may recall that the surge began in 2007, the uh, operation that was considered, at least in military terms, extraordinarily successful. And Austin helped orchestrate that at the position, that number two position, which is so important for moving about the forces, handling the logistics, whereas Petraeus was more focused on the higher level politics, dealing with the Iraqi government, working with Ambassador Crocker on that sort of thing. So that was a success. And that's also apparently where General Austin got to know then Vice President Biden, who, as you may remember, had been given sort of the Iraq portfolio by President Obama early in Obama's first term. And then after that, Austin came back, rotated out of that job, and wound up in his last military job as the combatant commander for Central Command, which, of course, is the broader Middle East region, extending as far east as Afghanistan, extending throughout the broader Levant and Arabian Peninsula over to Egypt. And in that position, he had the uh, unfortunate challenge of dealing with the rise of ISIS because Austin was there, as I recall, from 2013 to 16 when he retired. And therefore, this was his last job in uniform. And in that period of time, ISIS took somewhere between a quarter and a third of both Syria and Iraq. That's certainly not General Austin's fault. But then he was the guy who had to work hard to try to address and respond to that and ultimately developed a plan that under Obama and then Trump was successful in depriving ISIS of its caliphate. But it took a long time, and there are a lot of debates about how good of a job Austin did in that role, whether he was somewhat too deferential to President Obama's view of the problem, trying to sort of minimize the options that might need to be considered in order to be successful. In other words, some people feel like Austin was a little bit too compliant with civilian authority. But it's only fair to note that ultimately the strategy he helped develop was successful, if not until after he himself had already retired and been replaced by General Botel. So that's a lot of detail. The bottom line is this is a guy who had some successes, maybe had some failures too, but was fundamentally a soldier that was focused on the Middle East region, like many soldiers and Marines in these last 20 years. Uh, and that's sort of where Austin ended his career. Again, a well-regarded career, retiring in 2016 as one of the very few four-star African-American generals we've ever had. So, Corey, how big a surprise to you was the appointment of General Austin as defense secretary? It had been talked about for several weeks as the Biden campaign was trying to make the mosaic of its cabinet come together. So it wasn't a total surprise, but I do think it's not an optimal choice. It's fair to say that the response, at least on Twitter among defense policy folks to this appointment has not been enthusiastic. And I, I can detect 
I think, three separate vectors of discontent, and I want to ask you about each of the three separately. So the first of them is that his name is not Michel Flournoy and that he's male. Is this a reflection of a particularly deep admiration for Michel Flournoy or a kind of competitive diversity concern, or is there something else behind this? Well, I think she's not the only qualified candidate. And so to argue that she was the only conceivable choice is an injustice to other people who were under consideration, like Jay Johnson. Moreover, it sometimes comes as a surprise to those of us who are defense experts that people responsible for a broader portfolio than just defense policy might not think defense expertise is the most important qualification for a cabinet appointment. And they may well be right. Certainly, Michelle Flournoy is extremely well regarded by Democrats and Republicans, by military and civilian. And of course, the Washington echo chamber being what it is, everybody had been repeating her name so often that we maybe all sort of believed each other when none of us actually had any raw data to confirm that she was the leading candidate. And so maybe the expectations were raised inappropriately. Although I should just be transparent and say, I do think she was the best qualified candidate of the three that we were uh, hearing about. And I think she would have been outstanding. And I supported her for what that's worth. I think that you're right also to identify this cleavage now. It's ironic. And I chuckle a little in a you know sardonic kind of way, or, or, or maybe even a pained way to think that a woman is almost not diverse enough <laughs> to get the job at this juncture. But of course, I'm being somewhat flipped because in reality, what President like Biden's trying to do is to create a government and a cabinet and a vice president and a top team that reflects the country's full range of diversity by gender, by race, by ideology, I guess so far not by political party. But nonetheless, um, he's, he's not wedded to any one particular constituency and nor should he be. He's trying to think about how the different pieces fit together. And yet, inevitably, now we have a world in which, even though we've had a black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, and uh, we've had other senior African-Americans, we have never had a woman chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or a woman secretary of defense. And now apparently Michelle Flournoy is not going to be that person either. So you can understand the frustration. But, you know, Joe Biden didn't owe that particular choice to anybody. And he's chosen a lot of other great women for key jobs. So, you know, I think people have to sort of get over that issue. I know you've got two more theories of the case to run by, run by us. But uh, I think on that one, you're right that there's a lot of loyalty towards Michelle, a lot of expectation it would be Michelle. But at the end of the day, people have to sort of get over the fact that, you know, Biden preferred Austin and he decided that an African-American was a more important form of diversification for this particular job, given who else he's already chosen for his government. And I personally don't want to argue over whether it's more important to have a woman or an African-American. I think that's not ultimately the most compelling way to make the choice. So I'll, I'll come back later to why I pref- would have preferred Michelle, but it's not based on the issue of gender versus race. I'm not sure the expectation should have developed that it was going to go to a woman. I think there are lots of Americans who would make good secretaries of defense. 
right? We tend to associate military leadership with good organizational skills, but we don't associate it with good political skills, which are also an important part of being an effective Secretary of Defense. I'm not quite sure how I would apportion the support for Michelle's candidacy among those factors, but I will say that there was no reason to believe that she would have a lock on it. She wasn't the only qualified candidate ever. Moreover, I'd bet a fair amount of money that if Lloyd Austin receives the congressional waiver and is confirmed for the Secretary of Defense, we will have the first female deputy Secretary of Defense. And that's also progress. The second issue that people are kind of voicing discontent with this appointment is just the merits of the individual appointment. They think he's the wrong guy for the job, or they think she was the better choice for the job. Evaluate that. Well, that's where I come down. And probably your third reason is going to be civil military relations, where I'm less concerned than some. But on the second issue, Michelle Flournoy is a person who having been undersecretary of defense for policy in the early Obama years, and that's considered the number three job in the Pentagon, and it covers the full range of global issues. She was already thinking hard about the rise of China and the beginnings of prickliness from Russia, which got a lot worse in ensuing years because Michelle left the Pentagon in 2012. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we're already on her radar screen. She was also thinking very hard about trends in technology and military innovation. Obama had his rebalance to the Asia Pacific in that period. Uh, There was an effort to try to develop uh, a greater focus on innovation in sort of, you know, technology development and military modernization with an eye towards China in particular. She already did all that in government. She and I were together on the CIA External Advisory Board when Dave Petraeus was director there and shortly after Michelle had stepped down from her policy job. And in that position, we were thinking a fair amount about the Arab Spring, but we were also thinking a lot about China. And both of us sat through a lot of briefings on that subject. In the work that she did in the private sector and also in her think tank uh, after stepping down from that Pentagon job, she also was thinking about great power competition. And she developed some special interests in military and organizational reform and efficiency. She tried to make that a big part of what she thought about in those years. I know her pretty well. I talked to her pretty often through that period. I wouldn't consider myself a close uh, Michelle Flournoy inner circle person, and I don't think I was likely to get a Pentagon job under her, but I do consider her a friend and someone I admire very much and have been in touch with. So I know she was thinking about this wide range of issues throughout the whole last decade. Meanwhile, for reasons beyond his control, General Austin was being asked to deal with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Middle Eastern problems, which are consuming enough that if you're doing that, you're not going to have a whole lot of time for other things. And I don't really know a lot. This is where I have to plead and acknowledge a limit to my uh, awareness. I don't know a lot about what he's been doing since he stepped down from government. Um, And I suspect he's certainly spent some time thinking about Russia and China and technology but I don't think he's been as prominent in the, in the conversations or in the research as Michelle Flournoy. So to my mind, she's spent a decade at least getting ready for the three big challenges that face the Secretary of Defense today, China, Russia, and technology. And General Austin's going to have a steep learning curve. I don't want to sound like I'm against him per se. Uh, I just think Michelle was the stronger choice on the merits. But if 
Austin's going to do this job, he's going to have to recognize, as he probably does, just how much he has to learn about these issues that were not previously in his wheelhouse. I wouldn't presume to know why President-elect Biden chose General Austin, but the optics of civilians hiding behind the legitimacy of uniforms is really problematic. And that's why I think retired General Austin is a suboptimal choice. I actually think the norms of civilian control of the military and military subordination to elected civilian officials have been kicked around pretty soundly in the Trump administration. And one of the things candidate Biden ran for election on was restoring the norms of democracy in America. And I think choosing a general officer only three years retired from active service and whose only professional engagements in those three years have been on the boards of defense companies is a narrowness of expertise that is also suboptimal. I share Mike's judgment that retired General Austin doesn't have experience in Asia or on Asia, and that that would make him another reason that he would be a suboptimal candidate, given that managing a rising China is the most important security challenge the United States faces. But I also think that the fact that he predominantly did his deployments in the Middle East will make it easier for President Biden to do something he clearly wants to do, which is walk away from the Middle East. He would be the third and possibly even the fourth president to feel the United States is overcommitted in the Middle East and to try and find ways to dial that down. So it's not clear to me that his Middle East experience is, isn't valuable, but it would also be valuable to have someone who had expertise and relationships at high levels in Asia. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And what about the third a reported finalist candidate, Jay Johnson, who's was the general counsel at the Pentagon, but is not a defense policy person by background, I think would be kind of more of an outsider. On the other hand, has a quite diverse background in security issues more generally, but no sort of great power conflict sort of background. Yeah, I thought that he also was not an ideal choice because of the same argument that 
even though his range of experiences may have been somewhat broader than a, a soldier who got bogged down in the sand of the Middle East because the country asked him to do so, General Austin. Uh, nonetheless, Jay Johnson was not as frequently involved in high-level policy research or policymaking or discussion in regard to Russia, China, and technology slash innovation. So um, I, he's capable. I don't know him personally, uh, but people speak very highly of him. He probably would have been a solid choice. But I just think that given the criticality of getting Russia, China, and technology right at this very fraught moment in our history and in international relations, you want somebody who's extremely well prepared for that job. If Sam Nunn were a little bit younger, uh, I would have thought he would be very good, for example. But someone like that, who's just been living and breathing this stuff day in and day out. And, uh, and Michelle was of the three, the one who would have been strongest. I think that, frankly, if you want to you know, broaden the conversation and you thought it was important for diversity reasons to have some African-American candidates, I would have added a couple more names to the mix, like retired General Vincent Brooks, who was the head of U.S. Forces Korea in his last military job and dealt with that crisis of 2017 with a very calm hand. And also before that job, had been in, ch in charge of U.S. Army Pacific operations through Pacific Command. Very distinguished and accomplished guy who thought more generally about the world. He had Middle East experience too, but his last jobs in uniform were in the Asia Pacific region. Or my colleague at Brookings, your colleague at Brookings, Frank Rose, who's a younger guy, but nonetheless quite experienced in government and thinks hard about these issues of Russia and China and technology. Again, it doesn't mean Austin can't do it, but he's got a steep learning curve and I'm going to keep, you know, pounding away at that theme because I just think these issues are so complex. It's not enough to just go in and say, I'm going to make Russia and China my priority. You've got to have a nuanced understanding about how to be firm towards those countries, but also stay calm and not get us into an unnecessary conflict because you're too ginned up for confrontation, which is the way that some people in the Department of Defense do think about Russia and China. So I would really prefer somebody who's just been reflecting hard and profoundly over a long period of time about the historic challenges that those two countries rise uh, pose for American security. And uh, again, I don't see that really either Johnson or Austin has had a lot of that preparation. I would have favored Jay Johnson's selection over Lloyd Austin's because he does have a broader diversity of experience because he has been an effective politician as a cabinet secretary and because he wouldn't require a waiver. You know, I think one of the disappointments of Lloyd Austin's selection is that it demonstrates how narrow the search was because, you know, go down the list of Fortune 500 CEOs. Many of them have run large, complex organizations and scaled them so I think we overestimate the value of specific defense knowledge. We underestimate the value of running a $740 billion a year corporation with 2 million employees. And military service is to some extent good training for that, but it's by no means the only good training ground for it. And by constraining the aperture so narrowly, we excluded a whole bunch of potentially qualified people. The final area where people are expressing a lot of concerns about General Austin 
is on the civ mill relations issue specifically that he's a recently retired general and this will be the second administration in a row to come into office wanting to nominate somebody who is presumptively not lawfully entitled to serve as defense secretary uh, and will require a waiver from Congress to get around the, I believe, seven-year statutory cooling off period between when you go from active duty to being defense secretary. Uh, You say that you are less concerned about this than others. Tell us why. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do consider it a check against Austin. I would prefer not to have a retired or especially a recently retired military officer in this job. By the way, Mark Esper, who was, of course, Trump's last secretary of defense, not currently in the position, but you know, fired a month ago. He was a retired army officer, but he only served for, I think, 10 years in the active force, 10 years in the guard. And he had been completely out of uniform for 12 to 15 years before taking on the job. I think that's a that's a very reasonable model. That's a nice compromise. Somebody who has some military expertise and understands the culture, but has spent most of his recent adult life out of uniform. So I do think it's not perfect. But let me begin by saying Mattis was spectacular to my mind. And the fact that he did so well proves to me that you shouldn't obsess about this point or consider recent military service disqualifying. Now, people will quickly add a lot of you know, conditions. Well, Mattis was unusual. He came in at a time when the Trump administration, you know, was dangerous in other ways. And it was good to have somebody with the ability to get President Trump to listen to him, at least for the first year. And he had a stature that commanded, you know, uh, respect at the White House. And maybe most civilians couldn't have had that. Or Trump might have chosen a civilian who was sort of, you know, too much of an ideologue or a, a Trump insider. And, and therefore, Mattis is the exception. Well, I agree that there were conditions and circumstances for Mattis that are different than today. But I think Mattis's success proves that this simple question should not be itself disqualifying. It should be viewed as one of a number of considerations. And uh, I also don't see that the military today is somehow at risk of being out of line or becoming too powerful in our system. When I look back on the big debates of the last 20 years, I see generals who did what they were asked to do and who sometimes got fired when they got a little bit out of line or had a difference of opinion. And I think that was true in the Bush administration. It was true in the Obama administration. And so I don't sense that we're somehow on the verge of having a country or a military where the generals and admirals have too much influence. That may have been true at certain other periods in our history. I don't think it's true today. And that's why this issue of, of, of Austin having been out of uniform only four of the seven years that would normally be required by law, just to me is, is a modest strike against him, but not disqualifying. I focus much more on the issue of his personal capacities and preparations for the job, not so much that he's retired four-star. I think President Trump's unpreparedness, his genuine ignorance on the subjects, and his recklessness made a once in a generation case for a waiver of a recently active duty officer becoming Secretary of Defense. I think Jack Reed was, Senator Jack Reed was right in 2016 
to say this is, should be a once-in-a-generation exception. I also am a lot more concerned about the corrosion of the norms than it sounds like Mike is, because I do not believe President-elect Biden would have nominated a recently retired general officer if President Trump hadn't done it in 2016. So in the space of only four years, you are seeing two potential waivers when there hasn't been one since 1947. I think that's the measure of how worried we should be about the corrosion of the norm. So I want to throw out another reason why this concerns people, including me, and just have you respond to it. So my concern about it is less that generals and admirals wield too much power in our system and more that we end up creating an almost Israeli-like expectation that the minister of defense is somebody who is, you know, a former high-ranking general, or in our case, general or admiral. I do worry that if if one's concern is that, you know, somebody like Michelle Flournoy isn't good enough there is some relationship between that and developing this tradition that basically the head of CENTCOM has a cooling off period and then becomes SECDEF, no? Well, no, I see your point. And that's part of why I would say that this is a strike against Austin in my book. And frankly, I'll just, you know, I'll be blunt. If I had been part of the inner Biden team, I would have argued against him behind closed doors because I would have thought there were better people because his preparation has not been in the areas that I mentioned before, China, Russia, and technology. And you throw on top of that this additional strike, which is not an asset for his candidacy. It's a a detriment to it. I just don't see it as disqualifying. You mentioned your concerns about where this hypothetically could go over time and how our culture could change. You know, I think you're right to have those kinds of, to raise those sorts of questions, but I think they are hypothetical at this point. We have such a longstanding tradition of not doing this that I'm not worried that one or even two exceptions to the rule are changing the culture. And in fact, if I'm correct that Austin's preparation is wanting, he may not last super long in this job. And it may be, you know, Michelle's turn pretty soon. And uh, I'm not predicting or hoping for that. But if he truly is, you know, not up to the job, uh, or if, if somehow the way in which he deals with civilians and military is too informed by his four decades in uniform, uh, I think the Biden team can figure that out and ask him to maybe, you know, move on after a couple of years. So I just think our culture of civilian control is pretty deeply entrenched. Doesn't mean we should take it for granted. And it is one reason why I would have preferred Michelle, but it's a small reason, not a major one. All right. So I want to come back to your point about only military experience, because A lot of people will listen to this podcast and have this initial instinct, quite understandably, I think, that running CENTCOM is kind of the best possible preparation for being SECDEF. After all, it's a combatant command, right? Uh, He's been deeply involved in, was involved in the surge. He was involved in the counter-ISIS campaign. What else do you want from a SECDEF? And in, embedded in your comment, it seems to me there's a, 
an assumption that the SecDef is not the same job as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And, exactly. And so I want you to spell that out for us. Why is somebody with uh, General Austin's career, as as Mike explained it earlier, what's lacking from that from the point of view of running the Pentagon? Well, for example, somebody who has only been the CENTCOM commander has never had to balance a budget. She or he has never had to run a healthcare system and decide what should be rationed for military service members and what should be extended to families of service members. Uh, she or he has never had to persuade Congress to increase spending and persuade them to give up bases in their district in order to reduce overhead for the military. You know, the thing about being a cabinet secretary is that politics is actually much better preparation for running the Department of Defense than military experience is. Because Civilian control of the American military isn't just the elected commander-in-chief, it's the elected members of Congress, and they are often a much more difficult sled ride than persuading the public or the president of anything. So there are a lot of kinds of experience. Retired General Austin is getting support because he's a racially diverse candidate, and I celebrate that. But racial diversity isn't the only important kind of diversity. And diversity of experience is really valuable for being a cabinet secretary, especially when you are running an institution like the Defense Department, where most of the people in it have the same education, the same kind of experience as you have. Greater diversity strengthens problem solving. I'm curious how you assess the confirmation politics of General Austin, given all of this. He not doesn't merely have to get confirmed. He has to get an affirmative waiver, I believe, from both houses of Congress. Given that there are people who are upset about the appointment for all of the three reasons that we've talked about, do you foresee any problem in actually installing him at the Pentagon? Yeah, I'd say the odds are seven in 10 that Lloyd Austin will receive the waiver and be confirmed. I personally do not favor that outcome. I think Congress should actually deny the waiver. President Biden is competent, well-prepared, isn't a danger in the way that President Trump posed. And therefore, I think we should not waive the requirement of longer retirement before putting somebody who has only military experience into the civilian job as the cabinet secretary for defense policy. So I favor him not receiving the waiver, but I give seven in 10 odds he will. It's a fascinating question. And I'm, I'm wondering these days if Biden's team did him a disservice by frankly not highlighting this issue enough. I mean, if we spend half of January debating whether to confirm General Austin, 
that's going to divide the Democratic Party against itself unnecessarily. That's going to inflame potentially race relations at a time when we're trying to get things better, not worse. And, and so I'm not sure Biden did himself any favor by going with his heart on this pick. But um, having said all of that, my expectation is that Democrats will make these same kinds of calculations, decide it's really not worth a big fight, voice their objections, and then support the candidate. And at least a few Republicans will probably do so as well. And uh, Austin will be confirmed. And so then the proof will be in the pudding as to how well he does his job and how well he can handle the three big challenges that, as I've noted, uh, I think he will have to really learn a lot about quickly because China, Russia and technology are so difficult and uh, so demanding. But uh, maybe I'm wrong and maybe there will be a groundswell that develops. Maybe something about Austin's past will show up. You know, uh, you never know. But I just think that a guy like General Austin, who I think is reasonably well-regarded, controversial in some circles, but reasonably well-regarded, reasonably popular, good success in Iraq to his name, ultimately some success in the counter-ISIS strategy to his name, even if it took a while and you know, had to wait for his successor. My guess is that in the end, people will not choose to fall on their swords over this within the Democratic Party, and there'll be enough Republicans that go along that he will be confirmed. But uh, that's just a guess. And I have about as much confidence in that guess as I would have been predicting that the uh, Washington football team was going to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, this week. So so I'm going to listen more than I'm going to talk to hear what different parts of the Democratic Party and the Democratic national security community say um, as this choice is processed and discussed. And we'll know more, I think, within a few days. We're going to leave it there. Mike O'Hanlon, Corey Shockey, thank you both so much for joining us, although sequentially not together. (laughs) The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and this episode it's produced as well in cooperation with the American Enterprise Institute. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo, with whom we are always produced in cooperation. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the social media platforms you use. Leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our music is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.